Hello, beloveds, and welcome to Christian Emotional Recovery, a podcast for those who are survivors of childhood trauma, emotional neglect, and narcissistic abuse. This podcast is hosted by Rachel Leroy, a college professor and trauma survivor. Many of us spend years trying to heal and don't get anywhere. We don't always target the trauma itself, which is so often what keeps us stuck. This podcast is where faith meets science. Rachel is an emotional healing expert with 20 years of experience applying healing modalities that helped her start making progress after nothing else worked. She'll show you how to do the same. Each week, we'll cover a topic that will show you how to heal trauma for good. Please check out our website and show notes at christianemotionalrecovery.com and join the Facebook community, Trauma Survivors Unite, Christian Emotional Recovery. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Christian Emotional Recovery. This is Season 3, Episode 17, and I'm your host, Rachel Leroy. And this episode will probably be our second-to-last episode of the season. So hopefully the next episode will be something about the holidays, about setting boundaries, about being happy and healthy during the holidays, about being kind to others, but about taking care of yourself at the same time. So we'll... um see how the rest of the season goes, but that's the plan right now. And this is episode 17. And this episode is don't make trauma your whole identity. Don't make trauma your whole identity. Now on this podcast, we talk a lot about not using toxic positivity, about not bypassing and disassociating and denying trauma and denying things that happen that are painful. And that is a very important part of the process. But what I do when I come up with podcast episodes is I think of experiences that I've struggled with and that I've dealt with and where I've gotten out of balance. And one area where I've struggled is that I have unintentionally at times made trauma my whole identity. Now, I'm going to make some disclaimers here in a little bit, but I don't want to get into all that now to create some balance. Everything that I teach on this podcast, I try to teach with balance. So we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But I wanted to first remind you, if you haven't, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. I have a YouTube channel. I'm hoping to put some more videos out soon. I haven't in a few weeks because I've been very busy with work, looking for a job and um, working on the podcast, among other things. And also, if you haven't, check out the Facebook group. They're both called Christian Emotional Recovery. Christian Emotional Recovery, the same as the podcast. And if you can, it would be, um, you can really help me out by paying, helping me to pay for the expenses of the podcast, helping me to just be able to live while I contribute time and energy and money into the podcast. Um, if you'd like to support the ministry, go to Patreon. I will link all of these in the show notes. Patreon is where you can help artists and creators like like myself, who create podcasts and YouTube channels and art and other types of um, creations. And also, if you'd like to, that if you do a monthly type 
contribution, you can do that at Patreon. And if you'd like to do a one-time donation of any amount, $5, $50, any amount is helpful, go to ko-fi.com, also a legitimate site for supporting creators. And I'll put a link below for Patreon, the YouTube channel, the Facebook page, and the regular webpage. There's a regular webpage. Also, an update on the platform. I created and sent out the first newsletter. And if you would like to be a part of that and you would like to be on the um, included in the newsletter, that will give you updates on the platform. It'll show you what resources are available. We'll talk about things that are coming up so you can get behind the scenes sneak peek ahead of everybody else. Um, go to the Christian Emotional Recovery Facebook page or rachelleroy.com and you'll find a way to sign up there um, with uh, contact. So just go to the contact information and you'll find a way to sign up there. Okay, so those are some things that you can do to support the podcast and to get the word out. Also, if you have a friend or a family member that you think might benefit from this, please feel free to share these resources with them as well. Like I said, I would like to eventually create a platform where there's free resources that will always be free and they are now and also some paid resources so that hopefully I can spend more time doing this and dedicate my whole life to it. And I feel like God has called me to do that. So I I really look forward to being able to do that increasingly for you. So let's go ahead and jump right into the podcast episode. And um, I am doing something a little different today. Sometimes I plan my podcast episodes and I do that more often with a loose outline. And then I'll elaborate on each point. And then other times I will just speak from my heart as I feel God is leading me to. But this time I'm doing sort of a combination because I have sources and I'm going to read from some of those sources, but I don't have an outline. I'm just speaking from my heart, but I'm also going to use the sources. So we'll see how this goes. It's sort of a crossover between those two formats. So bear with me, I'm experimenting with something a little bit different. But let's go ahead and jump right into Season 3, Episode 17, Don't Make Trauma Your Whole Identity. So I want to create some disclaimers here, like I was talking about a minute ago. So I want to make a note that this is where I said I wanted to put some balance in the podcast episode and to give some context here. This is a trauma survival channel. I emphasize compassion over, oh, you whiny victim, get over yourself and all of that kind of mentality. We don't do that here. However, we do emphasize personal responsibility. And that does not mean blame. That does not mean that anything is your fault. It just means that um, sometimes we can get caught in victim mentalities, even when they're not our fault. And even if we are victims in a way, that's why I use the word survivor instead of victim. It's much stronger. It shows that there is hope and that there is recovery and that there is healing on the other side and that your entire identity is not wrapped around trauma. And at first it can be. But I emphasize the fact that it isn't and it doesn't have to be because you can come out of it and you can heal. Because of all the things that I'm teaching and teachers like me are teaching and other trauma-informed teachers and psychologists and pastors and ministers and rabbis and priests and, and coaches and lay persons, just all kinds of people that are out there trying to do what is right and help people heal and to do it in a way that is compassionate. 
there is a balance, okay? So I want to differentiate here between obsessive thoughts that can come from trauma itself that are not your fault, that are programmed into you against your will, that you have to work through and be kind and patient with yourself to overcome. And then when you're going through it, you need to have some resilience and some patience with yourself then too, compared to taking on the concept of trauma as our identity when we can choose not to. In other words, there's some obsessive obsession that goes on and ruminating that we can't help. And if we fight it, we actually make it worse. That's why I do these backdoor approaches, for example, with the ACORN technique, where you understand and you talk to and you listen to and you feel and you ask questions to your trauma and to your... um emotions, difficult emotions, because trying to quote, I'm using air quotes, get rid of those emotions, that doesn't work. Trying not to think about something. If somebody says, don't think about a white polar bear, what's going to pop into your mind? A white polar bear. Human nature is just so weird, right? But you know what? This whole process is about healing. And it's about balance and it's about perspective and it's about knowing that this whole process of healing may be your responsibility, but the fact that you had to heal to begin with is not your fault. So I, for example, I have gotten caught up in this whole process of my trauma is my identity both before I knew what trauma was and I used that word, I would get in these anger spirals where I would journal and the journaling would become self-destructive and all I would do was reiterate how unfair life were, was, how how I had gotten a crap deal and how this person over here, life had been so much better than for them and life had been so much easier for them and it wasn't fair and I was angry at so-and-so and um, I don't know how I could ever forgive them and life is just unjust and unfair. I'll be honest with you, I still struggle with that. I still struggle with that in my relationship with God. There, I said it. And I know that a lot of Christians will be like, oh my gosh, you can't say that. I do. I struggle with it and I'll just be completely honest about it because I want you to know that you're human and if you experience that, that is normal if you have experienced a lot of hard trauma in your life because it makes you wonder where was God during all of this and you wonder what's God's role in all this? Why did he allow this? And I do have some podcast episodes that address that. I'm not here to open that whole can of worms, but I do want you to know that if you think and feel that, that's a normal trauma response too. And there's nothing wrong with you if you think that. Job did it. Lamentations. What is the whole book of Lamentations about? You don't think that it's, um, you think it's bad to question and to get angry and to be like, God, what the heck? What is going on here? Why are you allowing this? What is happening? This is unfair. David did that. I mean, it's all over the Bible. So read it and let it heal you. The thing is, is you don't want to get caught in that spiral that I was talking about where you can't get out because that's where you start reiterating your trauma and actually making it worse. And I've also included some um, YouTube videos on how you can re-traumatize yourself and pitfalls that can slow down your healing. So if you want to go back and check out those, that will also be something that can help you to, that relates to this theme as well. But I wanted to share my personal experience because I have gotten caught up in identifying with my trauma to the point that it's become my whole identity at times. And that's all I could think about. And that's all I could talk about. Now, I do hear sometimes people say, if you talk about your problems on Facebook or your trauma on Facebook, shut up. Nobody wants to hear all that stuff. 
And I find that those kind of comments are usually made by people that tend to have high narcissistic traits and or people that tend to treat people that way. A lot of the times it is. Other times it might just be people that come from families where it's like, we don't talk about that stuff in public. But if we shame people and we shut them down and we make them feel bad because they're sharing their stories online, then we're actually making reiterating the trauma for some people. So if somebody wants to share their experiences, what's it to you? You know, just let them be. Just scroll past it. You don't have to read it. And I'm probably preaching to the choir here because most of you understand that. I'm not talking about... Now, I've I've seen people post very personal stuff on Facebook like, my husband cheated on me or my wife um, cheated on me or um, just something very, very inappropriate to put on Facebook. I'm not talking about like sharing overshare kind of stuff. I'm talking about sharing your emotional struggles in a general sense or what you've been through and what you're doing to heal. Or if you struggle with mental health conditions like depression or anxiety and you share your story, some people feel comfortable doing that and some people don't. But if you don't and somebody else does, Maybe that's how they help other people. Maybe that's how they heal. Maybe that's the only people they have in their life to reach out to is on social media because they have no support system. That's why I don't judge people when they do that. I tend to be the kind of person that shares my experiences, obviously. And a lot of people are not. And maybe that's also how they heal. Maybe they tend to go internal more. It, But the, the point is, is that you can share your experiences, you can say, this happened to me, and you can you can um, work on your trauma healing, but it's very easy to get caught up in the unfairness of it. It's easy to get caught up in rumination where you start obsessing over this happened to me, this happened to me, this happened to me, versus what I'm talking about with the obsessive thinking. It's more like an intrusive thought, and it's more like the actual moment of trauma itself replays in some way. That's different than where you look at your overall trauma and it becomes your identity or you over-identify with it. Now, I wanted to read the definition of over-identification just so you understand it. And the term is usually used when you over-identify with another person or with an animal or something like that. But I think you can over-identify with concepts as well, even if they are true for you and even if they have been your experience. Remember that you are fearfully and wonderfully made and that God loves you. And you were a perfect, wholesome being when you were created and when you were born. Your identity is separate. Remember, we've talked about internal family systems. You've got a self that is free from all of that. The trauma that happened to you, the abuse that happened to you, the traumatic event that happened to you, the neglect that happened to you, whatever the case may be, that is not who you are. Your identity is that core self that can never be Um, compromise, that can never be corrupted, that can never be changed. And that is the part of you that is fearfully and wonderfully made. That is the core soul that is always at peace, that is always healing, that is always able to look at things objectively. And then those other things have been put on you, but that's not you. That's not your identity, if that makes sense. We can lose touch with ourselves. We can lose touch with our identity, but that's not We're cut off from that. We're cut off from that part of ourselves. But that's not, it's not that we don't have our identity anymore. And it's not that we aren't an identity anymore. We're separated from it. 
You see the difference? And so when you start healing, you start fusing that fragmentation and it starts coming together and you start becoming whole. And I love the metaphor. I forgot what the word is, but there is um, a practice in Japanese culture where um, broken objects like ceramics, let's say a teacup, let's say somebody breaks a teacup into a few pieces. There's a um, practice where they use gold paint or glue to put the teacup back together and it shows the cracks and the fragments where the teacup was broken but it's put together it's whole again and it's even more beautiful because of what happened to it i'm not saying your trauma is beautiful okay i'm never going to say that on this channel it sucks but i'm saying that because it happened the best that can come out of that to see the beauty of it in terms of who you are now and how it can deepen your understanding of other people and how it can help you to take all that and make you a deeper, more wholesome, more feeling, more compassionate person. That's the kind of person God wants us to be, right? To be able to relate to and connect to others on a deeper level. So I wanted to talk a little bit about how you can rewrite your identity, rewrite your identity. There's a few articles here that I'm using as resources, and one of them is The Power of Rewriting Your Identity, and this is from Michigan State University Extension, and um, The Power of Rewriting Your Identity, it's by Tracy Abram, Tracy Abram. The concept of rewriting your identity, it says in order to rebuild, one must embrace the darkness, the darkness including the things that happened to us, right? Joseph, he's an expert that the, um, the article talks about earlier on. Joseph explains that you can't erase something that already exists in a mental image in the mind. You can only add new possibilities. The solution is not to run from it, but to turn and face it. Like I said, you can't not think about a white polar bear. The only way it says to be free is to include it as part of your identity. Keyword part, not all. And it says you don't have to love it. You just have to stop fighting it because what you resist persists. I hate that, but that was what I was talking about a second ago. The chapter introduces a number of steps designed to help you build your new identity. It's referring to a book written by Joseph. Um, the book is called... The book is called... Uh, the act, um, the act resilient method from trauma to transformation, um, the act resilient method from trauma to transformation. So that's the book that this article is referring to. And it says the chapter introduces a number of steps designed to help you build your new identity. First, acknowledge that a wound to the core has occurred, the core self. When the second step is to practice forgiving yourself and or the other person. Spend time journaling or writing. Lastly, start using your imagination as a source of power. Writing and journaling those pretty or positive things you notice could be your first step. Challenge yourself to find a certain number each day and then increase the goal daily. And then it says playfully and deliberately seeing yourself as someone you are not is healing. That sounds counterintuitive, but it actually makes sense because it gets those gears grinding in that part of your brain. And it also gives you a chance to look at things differently. It breaks you out of that mode of being stuck in your trauma. 
Okay, it says Joseph writes that the process of discovery happens naturally through the freedom that comes from improvisation. Through improvisation, you loosen your idea of who you think you are. Playing other characters stimulates the mind. So you might try some role-playing games. This is me. Or you might play a video game or, you know, watching healthy healing television shows and movies, uh, being in a play, writing stories. Those are all healing in a visceral way, especially when they're related to things that happened with trauma. And then it says, through improvisation, you loosen your idea of who you think you are. Playing other characters stimulates the mind. By playing characters different than you, you flex your identity muscles. You realize you can play a role, even fully, and then drop it whenever the scene is over. This, quote, being who you are not creates more, quote, identity flexibility and seems to facilitate the reintegration of the core psyche. And then it says, I recommend reading the book, The Act Resilient Method for From Trauma to Transformation. Um, and then it talks about community theater, journaling, and um, other ways to help with this is mindfulness training, anger management, and things like that. It talks about some specific resources, but you can read that if you want. Um, I'll include the article in the um in the show notes, as always. And so, a little bit about that rewriting your own identity. That's kind of what you're doing when you're doing this whole healing process. You're reprogramming your mind. That's literally what the process is. And um, so, when your struggle has become your identity, how do you rediscover yourself? That's a good question. And the first article talks about that a little bit. And I have another article here by Danica J. It's in Tiny Buddha. This one is more about mental health. It's not directly Buddhist per se, but it's more about mental health. And there's a lot of good articles on this site. But it says, um, when you struggle, when your struggle has become your identity, how to rediscover yourself. And this article talks about the author's experience of disassociating and then going to see a therapist and realizing that they had a lot more trauma. They tried to underplay the experiences they had as a child and realized that they had been pushing them away. And so she says, I was flying high for a while as I attempted to recover with every type of self-help trick out there. Sounds familiar, right? And then she says, but then came the fog. Somewhere in the mix, I began to break down as I realized the true impact of what my therapist had told me. My entire identity up until that point in my life had been formed around that trauma. I didn't know who I was without it. And so she starts asking all these questions. What do I like to do in my free time? What do I like eating? What's my favorite color? Um, what do, Am I funny? Am I serious? And so there's just all these questions. And... I think that how people disassociate from their identities can vary from person to person because for me, I have strong self-knowledge and I know all these questions about myself, but there are people who don't. For me, I was more disconnected from my body than my mind. I could answer all those other questions. How am I feeling? How does this impact me? Those are the things that I couldn't answer. So think about what part of you you might be 
disconnected from in terms of your identity. And then she says, I wish I could speak to you from atop a mountain of wisdom, but I can't. I'm still in the process of figuring it all out. But there are a few things that have helped me remain strong and encouraged through the entire process. So these are ways, as per the article, when your struggle has become your identity, how to rediscover yourself. She gives you a list of them and talks about each one. I won't go through all the details of them, but she says one of them is to release the struggle. Um, I'll read all of this one because I think this one needs a little context. She says, this one, of course, is easier said than done, right? But it is one of the most important parts of making peace with your past and untangling your trauma. Your identity and narrative that was forced upon me uh, was one of defeat and self-hate. I stuck to the narrative because that's all I knew. When you're a child, you have nothing else. So you have to learn something new, and that's where all of this healing work and reprogramming comes in. She say, I might as well have been introduced um, introduced myself as the girl whose parents don't love her and the girl who has failed to secure any meaningful, intimate relationships. Realize, as I did, that the narrative is not yours. You see how I'm talking about separating your core identity and your core psyche from the trauma that happened to you? Even if you don't know who that core person is, You need to separate it, and that can be so scary, but you can get to know him or her, and you can ask them who they are, and you can start to separate that and build that identity that is separate from that trauma. So she says, realize, as I did, that the narrative is not yours. It is not your name. It is not what you have to answer to. There's more to you, so much more. How are you going to start introducing yourself? And then she says, start from a place you know. For example, um, think about things or places that you liked as a child. Maybe it's the first time you laughed at something. Maybe it's a place that you love to go when you felt safe. Maybe it's something that you know you love to do or something that means something to you or a relationship that was good in your life. And so... Those are some of the suggestions or similar suggestions she gives. And then she says, start from a place you don't know. She says, it seems contradictory after the last advice, right? But in a way, not knowing who you are can give rise to the most unexpected blessings. Um, A lot of people have defined themselves by their trauma. So separating yourself from that gives you a chance to not do that anymore. You have a blank canvas you can start over. There's a chance of creating a version of you that feels right. And then it says, remember what you have gained. This is what's important here. I'm not talking about faults or toxic positivity, but being positive is not always toxic or false. That's not true, okay? But it says, you know, doing it in a way that's authentic is what's important. Remember what you have gained. As we begin this process of self-discovery, it can be very easy to get hung up on how wrong everything is or was. That's where identifying with trauma and choosing to look at it another way without toxically bypassing what happened can be helpful. She says, despite making significant gains, and if you're reading this, you probably already have, you might find yourself focusing what is still wrong or even what happened to you in the past that's wrong. That's what I've had to work on. Take some time out of your day to remember how far you've come. Um, Are you less anxious today than you were yesterday or maybe this year than last year? Score. Did you discover a new interest but hadn't worked up the courage to try it yet? That's still progress. The scoreboard is on your side because we are counting wins, not losses in this game. And then it says have patience. 
Patience is difficult for people who are trauma survivors, but as you work on controlling those um, animal sort of lizard brain fight or flight responses, you learn to calm that nervous center down and you're able to have more visceral, physical, literal patience. And if you're in, still not there yet, give yourself some grace. Do you realize that when you give yourself grace on that, knowing that you're doing the best you can and you're working on it, that God is also giving you grace? And do you also realize that that in itself is some a form of patience? There's more than one way to be patient. You're being patient with yourself if you show self-compassion. If you show somebody else a reasonable level of um, leniency and understanding. I'm not talking about letting people run over or abuse you, but showing leniency and understanding with people's human flaws. That is patience. So you do have more patience than you think. So start from there and then work towards some of those more physical reactions that you have in the body. So discovering your new identity will take time, it says. It can take months or years, but um, it will pay off. And then take a break. Don't do it all the time. That's another thing about making trauma your identity. I know I talk about regular practice. It's so important. But I also say take a break. Take a couple of weeks where you don't do any of this stuff. Or maybe you just do very basic maintenance because some people need to do something and don't need to stop. But then maybe you're doing it more hardcore at other times. It's draining. This work is so draining. So taking a break is another way that you can... Not let yourself get immersed in this whole identity of trauma thing, okay? So there's another article that talks about, this is a scientific article, and it's pretty long, and there's so many resources in it, I'm not going to read it. But it's the National Center for Biotechnology Information, National Library of Medicine, and this is the European Journal of Psychotraumatology. Um, and it's from 2020, and it's written by Ruth A. Linnaeus, Brandon A. Turpo, and Margaret C. McKinnon. Okay, so it's basically an article that talks about the sense of the self, um, the sense of self in the aftermath of trauma, lessons from the default mode network in the post-traumatic in post-traumatic stress disorder. So I'm just going to give you a very quick summary of this to show you that this whole concept of identity being usurped and uh, overridden by um, traumatic events is scientifically proven, okay? So when you have struggles with your identity, I'm telling you to give yourself a break because if there is scientific evidence, strong, overwhelming, lots of studies that back this up, then you are not, I'm not saying that you can't do anything about your trauma and you should just be a victim. Obviously, that's not what I'm saying here, but know that if you're struggling with your identity, that's not your fault if you've had a lot of trauma in your life. Any kind of trauma that's consistent or extremely impactful. It basically talks about your default mode network. And it's basically the default mode network is a part of the central part of your brain that has to do with self-related thoughts and experiences represented neurologically. Okay, so it's basically your self-identity, how you feel, your thoughts of yourself, relating experiences of your past, 
and relating those to your identity. And basically, people who have lots of trauma, their sense of self can be damaged by that and disconnected. And people can feel disassociated and can feel numb. And because of that disassociation and numbness, a lot of times people will do dangerous things and dumb things to try to fill those gaps in to try to feel something because a lot of times I, it's like, I don't feel real. I don't know who I am. I don't feel, I can't feel in my own body. I don't feel like everything. I feel like I'm in this sort of haze or this fog and it's not necessarily a pleasant feeling. It's more like an empty feeling, almost this feeling of numb futility. And believe me, I felt that. And sometimes that can be more torture than crying and feeling emotional pain because when you feel emotional pain, at least you feel something. And then sometimes you may even be like me where you try to get yourself to cry just to feel something. And other people will do it in even more destructive ways where they'll, like I said, do stupid and reckless things. That's where a lot of addiction comes from because it makes people feel something. Some people will... Um, self-medicate in ways that are unhealthy, like drinking alcohol. Some people will, um, that emotional emptiness becomes um, maybe anorexia or um, bulimia. Some people will purge because it makes them feel something or the eating and then the purging makes them feel something. And then some people, um, one of the common things that people do is that, it, like I said, it's rooted in addiction because they want to feel something. And drugs do make you feel something. You get a high. You feel better for a little while. But the problem with that is that at the end of the day, it leaves you more numb and more disassociated than you were before because it's not contacting and healing the root cause of that neurobiological disconnection. When you start working with your identity itself, when you start making connections between your core identity and healing, when you start doing that reprogramming in your mind, that and getting into the body and doing the healing of the trauma in the body, you're making psychosomatic connections in your brain so that you can allow your default mode network to kick back in and to reconnect to those other parts of yourself. You're starting to feel more connected to yourself. You're starting to feel more alive in a more natural sense, in a more balanced sense. You don't get those highs and lows as much. You feel stable. You feel good. You feel okay. It's almost like this slow, steady flame instead of this like explosion. And it's healthier because it's sustainable over time. And you're still going to feel numb at times and there's going to be highs and lows, but that's reconnecting there will help you to reintegrate your default mode network. But if you want to read the scientific, the science behind it, this article is pretty dense, but a lot of the language is actually pretty understandable if you can get through all of the um, source references. They're just littered all the way through it. And I will put that in the show notes. It's called The Sense of Self in the Aftermath of Trauma, Lessons from the Default Mode Network in Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. And the default mode network is the part of your brain that is identity, basically, to put it in simple terms. It's the, it's the part of your brain that is identity, so how does trauma impact identity? What is the connection here? Um, there is, like I said, you saw how trauma can impact your brain. And that 
brain, the part of your brain that impacts identity, is directly connected to other parts of your brain. And a lot of those connections are severed or I would say in most cases not severed, but more disconnected. They've shown brain scans. There's pictures of them in that article I just showed you where they're Things aren't working like they're supposed to. They're not firing and connecting like they're supposed to. But when you start doing this work, you start... The the beauty of the brain is that a lot of it can be healed and you start reconnecting those neural connections between those parts of the brain so that your identity is integrated. So you do feel like you're whole and complete and yourself in your body again. So there's another article here in Safe Harbor... It's a place called Safe Harbor, Christian organization that does a lot of advocacy, and it's a trauma-informed group. So this is a great place. You may want to check out their whole website. It's called Safe Harbor. But this article, Trauma and Identity, Who Am I?, is written by Bethany Fisher. And the article talks about the link between trauma and identity and some of the things that can... um, Some of the lesser known effects of trauma that people don't talk about as much are identity loss, it says, identity alteration, trauma-centered identity, identity affirmation, identity replacement, and much more. And, And then it talks about how when you have a lot of trauma, you go into survival mode. And because you go into survival mode, you take, especially when you're a child, all of those inner resources that normally would go towards your development as a child or even as an adult toward continuing your development, a lot of that gets displaced and goes to survival because you're just trying to keep yourself safe and make yourself feel safe. And when you do that, identity gets disrupted is what it says here. So let me read this part of the article under survival. It says, Psychiatrist Grant Brenner says that identity gets disrupted because basic survival takes precedence over and uses resources ordinarily allocated for normal development of the self. So our sense of self is mostly developed when we are children. We expand on that foundation as we get older. And when we experience trauma, we slow down this development. This is especially true of children experiencing repeated trauma. Time normally spent on learning about yourself is spent on dealing with these painful experiences. Adults, too. Again, that sucks. It's not fair. And then that's how it can be so easy for it to become your identity. But it says once you are away from the trauma, it may be too painful to look inside yourself due to toxic shame. Great. Even more wonderful, right? You get to feel shame that you never did anything to cause. But it says, it is human nature to avoid painful things. Sacrificing your sense of self for survival can be a consequence of carrying trauma. And then that causes what is called disassociation. And it's a mental process that causes a separation of one's thoughts, memory, and identity. See? That's where that is happening in the brain. That's where you're fragmented. That's where your core self, your identity, is separated from your thoughts, your feelings, your memories, and all those other things. And so... Some of the side effects of that are feeling like you're missing part of yourself, not recognizing yourself, being unable to remember yourself as a child, and having parts, quote, of yourself that don't seem related to each other. Fragmentation. That's where your identity is split. That doesn't mean that most of the time you have multiple personalities, but you do have different parts, kind of like what they talk about in internal family systems. So then... One of the dangers of disassociation due to the trauma is when self-care is forfeited 
to detachment. In other words, self-care is impaired and one learns to live apart from oneself as a matter of habit. Without a sense of self, it can be difficult to find the motivation to care for yourself. And a sense of self is identity. That's identity. Okay? So trauma equals identity. That's what can happen next. Um, And then in the article, it says, I mentioned earlier that the Journal of Adolescence identifies trauma-centered identity as an impact of trauma on the sense of self. People often find traumatic experiences to be defining moments in their lives, understandably. This can be positive when it leads to personal growth or societal change. However, trauma-centered identity has the potential to be very harmful. So it's how it's approached that makes it healthy or unhealthy. You cannot change what happened to you, but you can work on how you approach it. Some negative impacts are surrounding yourself with people who have fit your traumatic narrative, toxic friends, abusive relationships, reliving the trauma over and over again, and difficulty navigating interpersonal relationships. All of those which are not your fault. And it says surviving trauma is something that should be celebrated. You should be proud to be standing on the other side of a horrific experience. However, When you base your identity on your trauma, you don't allow yourself to heal. And that's where I've been caught in that vortex. And then, so if you ever find yourself there and a light bulb goes off and you're like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Not like you're just like in a spiral you can't help, but you like know you can stop it. That is a wake up call. That's an opportunity. That's God talking to you. That's like saying, my child, I love you. Look at what you're doing to yourself. Look at what's happening here. This is not your fault, but you can stop this process and you can go in a different direction and you can connect with your identity. You can connect with your identity in me again. And so that's an opportunity. It's a wake-up call to be able to not identify with the trauma and to come back to your core identity and work on that. And so basically... Um, it can be very difficult to come back to that. But when you keep doing that healing work, you start to reintegrate yourself. And this article talks about some of the things I've talked about, which include DBT and EMDR, which are um, body-based therapies, talk therapy, cognitive-based therapy, and all of those that can help you to heal. But uh, being around people who are more positive, not the ones that bypass and invalidate, but the ones who are authentically positive, Maybe other people that are trauma survivors. They don't have to be. All they have to do is be understanding and kind. Okay? Abusive relationships. Get away from those as much as you can. Toxic people. Being around healthy, kind, integrated people is one way you can help yourself. When you start ruminating on the trauma over and over, interrupt that cycle in whatever way you have to. Even when it's in a way you can't help. For example, I would get caught up in this sort of panic mode when something in my environment was in a way I couldn't control it. And I'd start obsessing and hypervigil- being hypervigilant and looking out my window and see what was going on. And I'd go outside to see if it was still happening. Don't do that. I don't care if you have to go watch TV for two hours. Disassociating is a step up from reliving your trauma is what I'm saying. So if you can do anything to get your mind off of it, to get away from it, that's a step up, that's healthier, do it. Difficulty navigating interpersonal relationships. That's where therapy and safe relationships are so important. And learning about yourself and what you like and what you need is so important. Coming towards the end of this whole concept of don't make trauma your whole identity, 
Um, how we think about trauma is vital to how we move on from it. That's obvious. And I just stole that line straight from an article that's in The Guardian. And it's by James Greig, Greg, G-R-E-I-G. And it's that's so true. How we think about and relate to our trauma is vital to how we move on from it. And that's why it's good to not only do the healing work, but, but to be mindful to how we relate to this experience, to how we relate to ourselves. So um, let me go straight into the middle of the article here, because I think this is important. Um, when we are traumatized as children and we get these grooves in our mind that play over and over and over and over, we get these stories we keep telling ourselves. I even talk about that in one of the first podcast episodes I ever did about flipping the script of our own life. And that's the script that we can rewrite. It takes time. We have to do it repetitively to sort of create those grooves in our minds that allow us to create a new story. But if we can stop those tapes and stop that ruminating and focus on something else or write another story that can help. And that's what it's talking about in this article. It says, but I do worry that the omnipresence of the trauma narrative in our culture might also be corrosive. It's talking about how trauma is something we talk about a lot now, but maybe sometimes we talk about it too much. And it says, for a couple of years, earlier in my 20s, I was obsessed with the idea that I was traumatized, irreversibly damaged. I had reasons to think so. The trauma narrative informed almost everything I did, particularly my relationships with other people. I felt motivated to change my behavior, even when this was nothing grander than deciding not to text someone because as I saw it, I was a traumatized person and this was the form it was taking. Trauma was a curse and an absolution. My life was destined to be terrible and nothing was ever my responsibility. So you can see how it can become an excuse, and that sounds cold and mean. That's why I don't like using that word, but it can. It can become an excuse, and that's why I say trauma is not an excuse to be a jerk or an a-hole. It can be difficult at times, but that does not give us a free pass to just act however we want. It's one thing to be patient with ourselves and to love ourselves. It's another thing to... It's another thing to just wallow in self-pity and expect everybody to give you more leeway and expect everybody to just completely adapt to you and bend to your will. And if somebody is just a complete jerk and they're being completely uncompassionate, and that's another thing. But you see, there's a balance there, right? You've got to give other people a little leniency and then they hopefully will do the same for you. A little forbearance is a better word there. But here, at the end of the article, it says, At the same time, setting up a dichotomy between trauma and environmental factors would make no sense. Trauma is an environmental factor. It's just one that relates to the past. That doesn't make it any less significant. If you look at the history of psychiatry, viewing mental illness as stemming from trauma rather than brain disease or character flaw is a huge step forward. So we've made a lot of progress in the last 20 to 30 years on trauma healing, and that's a good thing. That's something good to remember. It says trauma is usually caused, however obliquely, by structural problems that have collective solutions. There are ways of thinking about it which aren't individualized and which could help um, could well be empowering. But when the trauma narrative becomes the go-to explanation for unhappiness, it may distract us from what's making us miserable in the here and now. So in other words, there are things we can do about this now. And so we need to remember that there's a lot that is in our power, even if we can't control everything that happened. 
And then it says it's not always possible to change our individual circumstances. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't, or it may take time. It says most of us can't choose to have more money, work a less stressful job, or live in a nicer flat than we already do. But it is possible to engage in some kind of collective effort to improve them. Even if this doesn't pay dividends anytime soon, the sense of collective possibility can be beneficial in its own right. It can make you an agent of the present rather than a victim of the past. I would also argue that doing your healing work can do that. And also when you start to get in that loop of identifying with the trauma all the time or making an excuse to get special treatment all the time, you pull yourself back from that. So it says rethinking the trauma narrative and realizing that the sources of our unhappiness go beyond the individual might empower us to feel like we actually do something about them. We can actually do something about them. We are more than the sum of the bad things that have been done to us. And that is so true. That is so true. And the last article that I wanted to look at here was five things the scriptures teach us about trauma and suffering. What does God say about all this? What does scripture say about all this? And this is an article by Dr. Matthew Stanford, and this is on Hope and Healing Center and Institute, the HHCI. And um, this is another Christian-based, it looks like mental health kind of um, resource or sort of platform. But um, there are five key truths the scriptures teach us about trauma and suffering. So part of identity is our identity in Christ. If we meditate on, pray on, read scriptures, and remind ourselves and journal about our identity in Christ, that is also healing that core identity and reconnecting it to other parts of our lives. So remember that part of your healing is remembering who you are in Christ and who you are in God. And some of the things that can help us do that is to practice that God is present and in control of our suffering. And I can't read all these scriptures and all of these examples, but there's a lot of examples here. And you can read those scriptures and that explains it. And strangely, some of it is in Lamentations, Psalms, and Job. I didn't just mention that earlier, did I? So, sorry, I like, I tend to be a little sarcastic. But then um, the next one is that God is good and cares for us. And there are scriptures to back that up. And you can also think about personal experiences that relate to these. What are personal experiences that God is present and in control of your suffering? What are personal experiences that God is good and cares for us? Meditate on those. Write those down in your journal. Reflect on them. The third one is, though our trials and suffering, um, through our trials and suffering, misspells trials and says trails, but it's trials. Through our trials and suffering, we have an opportunity to draw closer to God. Now, I don't, I'm not one of those people that believes God makes us suffer so that he can force himself to be closer to us. That's just, yuck, that's icky. But I do believe that the nature of life is that humans are fallen creatures, that things happen. There is suffering in the world, Whether we like it or not, that is the reality. And so suffering will come to us at some point in our lives. We have times where there's more suffering than others, and there are people who may experience more suffering than others. But it happens to us all. And so through those trials and suffering, we do have an opportunity to draw closer to God. So if things are going to happen, the only thing that we have control over sometimes is we can steer some of that where there's less suffering. But in Buddhism, it's through striving that causes suffering. It's through forcing, trying to force things, trying to make things not what they are or trying to make things be what they're not. It's an acceptance and surrender that you're actually able to change 
That's the irony. That is, um, it almost seems counterintuitive, but that is where you find peace instead of suffering. But there is still going to be a certain kind of suffering that's just the condition of life. Things that are unpleasant, even if you accept them, it softens that suffering a lot. But God is with us through all of those. And um, so there's some scriptures here that where it talks about that as well. And then the fourth one is Jesus understands what it is to suffer. So Jesus bears us up in our suffering. He's been through everything that we have. He knows what that feels like. And there's verse after verse after verse after verse of God, of Jesus's compassion for us through and in our suffering because Jesus himself experienced it and knows what it feels like. And there's places where Jesus even talks about God, where are you? When he asks, can this cup pass from me in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, Father, um, why have you forsaken me? So there's places where even Jesus has doubts. And Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God. And, and so that's, you know, it shows how much Jesus understands us. And meditating on that and writing down experiences in our own lives when we have felt that connection is also helpful. Um, and then number five, the last one, our identity is grounded in Christ. I'm going to read this one. It says, finally, our identity, our identity is not defined by traumatic events or suffering, but is grounded in Christ. God does not see you as a victim. I'll say it again. God does not see you as a victim. He sees you as his child. That core identity separate from the trauma that I was talking about is scriptural. It's psychologically based and proven, and it's also scripturally based. The scriptures tell us that as children of God, we were chosen by the creation of the world to be holy and blameless adopted sons and daughters, lavished with grace, redeemed, forgiven, given spiritual wisdom and understanding, and marked with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, 4 through 14. So meditate on those scriptures. Write this down. Journal about it. So it says, we are in Christ. We sit at the right hand of the Father. We have his righteousness. We must not allow tragedy or circumstances to define who we are or how we live. We have his very life within us, and we must choose to live out that truth. Is it easy? No. But is it possible? Yes. If we can ground ourselves strongly in our identity in God and in Christ, and we can meditate on that and journal on that and write about that and read about that, and watch videos on that. You get the idea and so on. Reprogramming our minds. That identity, that core identity will start to become whole. You'll start to see those little gold lines fusing those disconnected areas of you. So you become this beautiful whole teacup again. Those neural connections in your brain will start to come together. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying that you'll be flawless. But in Christ, we are flawless. And so God will complete whatever we can't complete ourselves. The whole point is, is that trauma healing is possible. Being whole is possible. Having a core identity again is possible. And it comes through these different processes and steps that we talk about on the podcast. And you have to find your own way with this. But just the whole point is not to let trauma become your identity and take over your whole life and take away your joy and fragment you in a way where you um, just wallow around in what happened to you and then there's nothing else. You're not a victim. You're a survivor. And you are a warrior. And this work is not easy. And what you're doing every day, you may not get recognition from your family or your friends. You're quietly laboring 
where people don't even see what you're doing. But God sees. Other survivors see. I see you. You are not alone. You can heal and you can make your identity something more than your trauma, something beautiful, something wonderful, something amazing. So never give up. Okay. Never give up. And so this whole podcast episode has been don't make trauma your whole identity. And we talked about different aspects of that. And I hope it's been helpful because a lot of this I literally improvised. I didn't know what I was going to say, but I hope it's been helpful for you anyway. And I hope it's been a blessing. Remember that you're fearfully and wonderfully made and God loves you. This has been episode 17 of season three of um, Christian Emotional Recovery. Don't make trauma your whole identity. Um, please feel free to share this work with somebody else. Check out the show notes where you can find links to the podcast, to the podcast um, website, to the regular website. You can see the other work I do there. You can check out the um Facebook group, and you can check out the YouTube channel, all with the name Christian Emotional Recovery. I'll put all the resources and this in the show notes, so you can check those out as well. Thank you so much. God bless you, and have a great day. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Christian Emotional Recovery, hosted by Rachel Leroy. For links to this week's resources and to join the discussion, check out this episode's show notes at christianemotionalrecovery.com, where you can also find links to our YouTube channel and Facebook group. Join our email list and get other episodes and resources. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review the podcast and tell a friend who may benefit from this message. See you next time. And remember, beloveds, God loves you and you are fearfully and wonderfully made.